Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. We're reading the John, first chapter, verses 1 through 5. New King James Version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You may be seated. If you'd like an outline of the lesson this morning, you may have it by opening Matthew chapter 19 on your lap. Matthew chapter 19, we'll start in the first verse in just a couple of minutes, and let me tell you how happy I am to see all of you here. God has blessed us with a beautiful spring day, or a spring-like day. I got up this morning, Paul, and I did my two miles, and I thought, uh, this air is clean and fresh, and aren't we blessed to get to worship Him today? I don't know about you, but I, uh, I get hungry for worshiping God. I hope you feel that today. I hope you are eager And I hope you came hungry for the Word of God. In John chapter 1 that you just heard read, that Tony read to us, the passage begins by our Lord. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. The word, Word, W-O-R-D, is the Greek word logos. It means something very important. And I want to launch this lesson with this thought. Jesus is the epitome of truth. Just let that soak in. He is so conformed to the truth that His Word, or His name rather, is Word. He is the Word because He is the epitome of what is true. In John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, he said this, and this is the condemnation. And and Jesus doesn't have any trouble, by the way, to affirm absolute universal truth. Jesus holds to absolute truth. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, doesn't come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they are done in God. You serve a God today who is of the truth. And his Savior Jesus, or our Savior Jesus, came to this earth and died for us. And he defended the truth. That's so important. I, I want to live my life walking in his light. And so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19. It's interesting to me in preaching that over the years when I've preached from Matthew chapter 19, I would have to say that mostly I've emphasized verse 9 because 
we've just had over the years so much difficulty with this subject about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And Matthew 19 and verse 9, wow, critical verse about this subject. Jesus, in very plain talk, discusses that. But that's not really the point of my lesson this morning. There's been a lot of pushback lately over transgenderism. And what's interesting about it is that is that some major businesses are suffering uh, grievously, financially, because people are pushing back against this, this uh, movement. It's uh, sort of a, an enlargement of the woke movement. And now it's transgenderism and, and uh, sexual change surgeries. And, and it, it involves children. It seems like the children are the targets. In Matthew chapter 19, there was pushback against Jesus and against the truth. And it, it came like this. There was two, two schools of thought about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And the school of Hillel was more liberal about that. Their, their, their idea was, and his teaching was, that you could put your, your wife away for whatever cause and marry somebody else. But Shammai was more conservative, only for the cause of fornication. And so they approached Jesus and asked him what his judgment is. What do you say about this? And they were, they were always, the Pharisees were always trying to trap Jesus. So you doubt their sincerity. But anyway, let's go to Matthew chapter 19. It came to pass, verse 1. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond Jordan. Great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read, He who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man divide. Point number one. Jesus says that God made them male and female. Now, conservatism is an interesting word. And, and we often use the terms conservative or liberal, reference to a lot of different things. Conservatism means that, that we hold to long-held truths. And liberalism often says, if it's new, it's better. Even if it's something that's been tried before. And failed and failed and failed and failed and failed. But, but we haven't tried it. And so let's try it. And conservatives say, hold on. Let's hold to the moorings that have been old and tested and tried. And, and so there you have kind of a division of the two things. Jesus said to this question, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning? Hold on. That's conservatism. That is, that is the definition of conservatism. Have you not read he, he which made them at the beginning? So he goes all the way back to creation. It's Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. And he made them male and female. And that's what Jesus recites here. Have you not read that he which made them at the, at the beginning made them male and female? Made them male and female. Now the word made, made is very interesting. It means to declare something or someone to be so. He declared it. That is to say that in the garden, he, he takes the dust to the ground and he makes Adam. And there is this physical human form. And he says, I declare this a man. He made them male and female. He made him what he called male. You are male. 
And then he took a rib from his side and he made a woman and he declared that form, which was different, of course, female. You are woman. You are woman and you are man. Now I want you to appreciate as you think about that, glue it down and think about the fact that your God in reference to this subject is binary. That's kind of a catch thing. You know, binary is, of course, generic. I mean, it, it applies to a lot of things. Computer software, of course. But binary means there's only two. There's just two. Always going to be only two. There are two. And in reference to gender, there will never be more than two. And so the woke term today is non-binary. It, it doesn't sound, it sounds kind of, I don't know, sort of scientific a little bit. Sounds a little educated, doesn't it? You know, I'm non-binary. What does that mean? It means that I'm walking up to God and I'm going to shake my fist and say, you're wrong. That's what it means. You are wrong. And Jesus is absolutely endorsing the will of God. Bear in mind, John chapter 1 says he is God. At the beginning, God made them. He made, he declared them to be male and female. It's binary. There are only two genders. Only two. Now, there are four things I want to draw from this. Here's number one. Can you pull up the next slide? The Bible teaches a person's gender is known at birth, and, he, and uh, it, it, you know what he is by the observation of the physical body. Okay? So you have, let's go back to Genesis, because that's what Jesus did. Look back in Genesis, look back at creation. And so he made this physical form, and he said, now that's a man. Made the, the female form, and he said, now that's a woman. Yeah, but I can go farther than that. So you go to chapter 4 and verse 2, and the Bible says they had their first baby. Now bear in mind, this is the first baby ever to be born on earth, and his name is Cain. And so Adam and Eve get together as husband and wife, and the result is Cain. And as she holds her baby... Eve says, ready for this? I've gotten a man of the Lord. Wait a minute. Cain has not had time to process, mentally reflect on his gender. He's a baby. Yeah, but you know what she said? This is a man child. How do you know? How do you know? I know because of the physical makeup. That's how I know. The point is that Jesus is referring back and declaring here his binary view that goes back to creation. This is how the creation was. Now, that is true despite other things that may or may not be. Sometimes you have a woman who has some, I don't know, tomboyish, maybe some more, we would call more masculine kind of tendencies in her personality. Sometimes you have a man, and he's, he's got what would typically be considered more female tendencies. Um, you know, the other day I painted a bedroom for a little girl who is, is six years old, and, and we painted it pink. That's a, that's, she wanted pink. Well, I, I've got a little boy too, you know, his grandson, and you know what? He doesn't want a pink room. That's not what he wants. That's neither here nor there, but the point is that a, that a man may be more feminine in his makeup, and a woman may be more masculine. It doesn't change the fact that one is a man, one is a woman. It doesn't change at all. And in fact, when you go to Genesis chapter 25 and about verse 27, you read about twins. Jacob and Esau, and, and the Bible says there, I think you got that verse, do you? There you go. And so they grew up, and they were different. And so Jacob liked to hang around the house, and he liked cooking. And Esau, Esau was a man of the field. He was hairy. He was rough. He, I don't think he ever took a bath. He smelled like the field, right? 
I hit a deer one time with a car. Didn't mean to, but I hit him and, and uh, tore the car all up. Everybody was fine, but tore the car up. And I remember getting out and walking around and the smell of that animal was so very distinct. You, I mean, you knew. And, and I think that's probably how Esau smelled. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Nobody in scripture ever had any, any uh, difficulty understanding that both of these were men. They were brothers, Jacob and Esau. Now, the fact that both are, are men wasn't altered by their personal preferences about those kinds of things we've discussed. It's not altered. A man cannot think hard enough. He cannot put on enough makeup. He cannot have enough cosmetic surgery to change himself into a woman. He cannot do it. It is not within his power. And Jesus said at the beginning, God made them male and female. And that is binary. God was very serious about this. I mean, this, this is not, I'm just not, I'm not creating something to read it into scripture. I'm telling you, he was serious about this. So you go, go to the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. And God says, look, I, I don't want a woman to dress in man's clothing. Not only do I not want you to try to become a man, I don't even want you to look like a man. I don't want a man to dress in woman's clothing. And here's the word that the Bible puts to it. It's abomination. It makes God sick. I mean, he's not going to put up with this. He's not going to tolerate this. Don't you be dressing like the people of the opposite gender. You need to look like the gender you are. Don't mess with this. You know why? It's because God's the one who did this. It was God's deliberate choice. And by the way, this is in a context of marriage. The reason why he made genders to begin with was not arbitrary. It was for the purpose of marriage. That's why he did it. Well, we'll talk about that some more in a minute. But this is God's business, and God made them male and female. Now, you have then, you have commands in the New Testament that are specifically designed for people of, of whatever gender they are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you have this discussion about the, the head coverings. And we can talk about that, the specifics of that some more later. But the, the point is that if you're a woman in these assemblies, don't you go in there with your head uncovered. Don't do that because you're a woman. And if you're a man, don't you go in there with your head covered because you're a man. The point is that, of course, you know which you are. How do you know? God made you. And he made you with these distinguishing characteristics. Now, here's the second thing. Go back to your list. Historically, mental health experts have taught that to deny one's physical realities was mentally unhealthy. It's really interesting when you study, and I've been <clears throat> studying different sources to prepare this lesson. And, and you know what? Everything's on its ear. Everything is going cattywampus about definitions and history, historic revisionism. We've got to change everything, right? So if, if you look up uh, some words, if you look up binary, just Google binary. And binary is a generic word that just means two. There's only two of it, whatever it is, just two. Look up binary, though, and now it's such a politically charged word that you're going to find a lot of stuff in there about non-binary. They just want you to know. That don't you be using this word binary the way that I'm using it today from the scriptures. Don't you be using it like that. They find that very offensive. But historically, it hasn't been like this. Now, let me show you a couple of things. Let's go to the next slide. Here, here are a couple of um, long appreciated and acknowledged mental difficulties that people have wrestled with. And the first one is body, body dysmorphia. It's It's... 
A mental disorder characterized by the obsessive idea that some aspect of one's own body part or appearance is severely flawed and therefore warrants exceptional measures to hide it or to fix it. Now, the greatest illustration that I know, or the most obvious that we deal with, is anorexia. And I know that we're not talking about that, but it's an illustration of this disease, this mental problem, is anorexia. And and, uh, Karen Carpenter, remember the Carpenters who sang... When I was young, oh, we loved the Carpenters. And and Karen Carpenter was an amazing voice. Beautiful, beautiful voice. And and she and her brother had the group called the Carpenters, and they just did massive things in the music industry. Karen Carpenter was a a slender woman. And, And she and her brother facially resembled one another very much. But the problem is she was anorexic. And so... This is, this is a great illustration of, of body dysmorphia. When she looked in the, when you looked at, at Karen Carpenter, you would say, she's a thin woman. When Karen Carpenter looked in the mirror, what she saw was an overweight woman. Now, I'm not, I'm not teasing you about this. This is serious. That's what she saw. And when she was at her peak, listen to me, she weighed 90 pounds. She weighed 90 pounds. She was, you listen now, that she was going to die. It was unintentional suicide. She was going to die with this disease that I'm talking about right now, this mental disorder. She was going to die. She was killing herself. She was, she had bulimia and was, was doing, and I won't go into detail, but, but you understand it, extraordinary things to, to, to lose weight because that's what she saw. And then when she was 32, in about 1983, she died. Her heart was beating, they said, one beat every 10 seconds. And she just died. Peak of her, she was just so wonderful. I got to stop here and say this to you. Now, I probably I'll say a couple of things. The first one is that I'm not preaching about this because I think anybody in this room has a problem with it. I'm not. I don't, I don't know of anybody who does. Not in this room. Can you hear me? So this is not, this is not a, a sermon because of that. It, it's because it's because there are churches of Christ right now, not to mention denominational churches. There are churches of Christ right now, even some that are considered conservative, who are in the throes of this problem. In the congregation and their leadership is struggling to know what to do about it. I don't, I don't want that here. I want that never to be true here. And I don't know what we'll face in the future. I just think it's better to head it off at the pass. I think we ought to talk about it. And I think when you meet people, we don't hate anybody. We're Christians. We don't hate anybody. But you need to be able to answer questions. You need to be able to biblically to know how to sit down with somebody and have a conversation about, about this. And that's, that's the reason, that's the reason that, that I'm talking about it. Uh, all right. We love everybody. And so this is, not a, this is not a sermon of hate. It is a sermon of clarity. And you say, but if, what if you were a dear friend of Karen Carpenter? I mean, what if you could turn back the clock and you grew up with her? And y'all were real good friends. And, and, uh, so she's got this thing where she's not eating, she's purging, she's, 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 she's not well. She looks gaunt and her skin is drawn and she doesn't look good. And, and, uh, so you go to her and you say, I'm worried about you because you're too thin. And she says, no, I'm not. When I look in the mirror, I see myself as I am. You don't really know me. I'm overweight. 
I'm profoundly overweight. I'm fat. Now, what will you say to that? And suppose you say, however you identify, I will support. And I just want you to know that I'm very proud of you. I'm proud of you for standing up for who you are. You're fat. And in whatever you want me to describe you, I'll make sure that I do describe you in the terms that you prefer. So if you like fatty, I know that sounds silly. I don't mean to be silly. But if you prefer fatty, when I see you, I'm going to call you fatty. Just because I want to support you. I want to support you. I love you. And I'll tell you something else too. The people at work, if they don't call you fatty, I'm going to see if I can get their jobs. Because they need to call you fatty just like I call you fatty. Because that's who you are. And I love you. And I want to support you with all my heart. Is that too much? Is that too accurate? Is that, is that a good analogy or not? And I'm telling you that that's not love. That is not love. It is not love. It's something else. And love says, and you get this. You get this about Karen Carpenter? You do. You wouldn't say that. You would never say that to her. You would say, honey, I love you, but you can't do this. You're not fat. You're thin. You're not healthy. And I love you enough that we're getting in the car. Wouldn't you? We're getting in the car. And I'm going to take you to somebody who can help you. Because I don't want to lose you. And the second one is body integrity disorder. And body integrity disorder has, up until now, I think been a very rare di- disorder, mental disorder. And, and, uh, but it's real. And, and it's been true through some history. And so you can read about this. And I think now it's just prolific. I think it's very large now. But, but anyway, the definition of body integrity disorder, the example of it, would be a man who has healthy legs but identifies as a para, paraplegic. He sees himself that way. He identifies that way, and he wants, he wants a surgeon to remove his legs. I know. I know how that sounds. It's reality. Just I, One article I read said that there were only a couple of hundred cases in the country. I would, I would add, until now until now. But, but this, this mental problem, a person has healthy appendages or healthy organs or whatever, but, but he or she views themselves as something else. And historically, and there's an article um, in the American Journal of Bioethics and, and says that historically the position of surgeons is that what you do to address this is not to remove those legs or whatever it happens to be, but you integrate the healthy limb into his body image. Got it? And incidentally, some people, this is kind of interesting to me, that some people refer to this problem as transabled. He's transabled. He views himself in this way. And I don't know, when you think about sexual reassignment, it is not different from this. It is to take healthy organs or healthy body parts and to remove them in order to yield to a person's image, body image. And here's the third one. Back to the list. So Jesus is, is binary, and intuitively, God makes us know that Jesus is right about this. So we go back to Genesis chapter 2, and and we know this is right, so... The Old Testament, I mean, the old uh, King James would say that in Genesis 2, that, that God made Eve a help meet for Adam. The word meet means perfectly designed for. Later translations would say comparable to. And the point is that, that 
the woman did not compete, come to compete with Adam, but came to complete him. And there are things that a man is and can do that a woman can never do. There are things that a, a woman is and can do that a man can never do. A woman insults man by trying to be one. A man insults womanhood by trying to be one because you can't. You, you can masquerade, you can pretend, and that's very sad. Incidentally, I'm never going to do the pronouns. I won't. I can't. I can't. I can love a person, and I will do that, and I can help people. All that I've got, I'll help, and I'll do that. But I don't, I just can't do the Karen Carpenter thing. I can't. I can't do the pronouns. I won't, I won't do the pronoun thing. I, I just won't. And then there's the appeal to science. I want to, I want to do this rather briefly, but I want to, you to hear it. So this is a, and I know that there are people, of course, to whom you can find, I mean, who, you can appeal, you can find scientists now that will say things that are so contrary to everything we've ever known everything that's ever been held to, and now they're, they're woke. They're part of this movement. This is an article um, in the New Atlantis, Sexual and Gender, Sexuality and Gender Findings from the Biological, Psychological, and Social Scientists, or Sciences, and it's written by Lawrence S. Mayer and Paul R. McHugh. Uh, briefly, credentials. Dr. Mayer is an... Uh, He's trained in psychiatry, biostatistician, research physician, trained in medicine and psychiatric in the UK. Currently, he's a scholar in residence in the Department of Psychiatric or Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, professor of statistics and biostatistics at Arizona State University. He's been a full-time tenured professor for over 40 years, held professional appointments at eight universities, including Princeton, University of Pennsylvania, Stanford, his co-author, Dr. McHugh, is arguably the most important American psychiatrist of the last half century, one of the leading psychiatrists in the world. Anyway, you get the level. Regarding human sexuality as it relates to mental health and social stress, they discovered these things. Listen closely. Compared to heterosexuals, non-heterosexuals are about two to three times as likely to have experienced childhood sexual abuse. Compared to the general population, non-heterosexual subpopulations, and you know there you can think that through, the subpopulations are at an elevated risk for a variety of adverse health and mental health outcomes and are estimated to have about 1.5 times higher risk of experiencing anxiety disorders than members of the heterosexual population as, as well as ref, roughly double the risk of depression, one and a half times the risk of substance abuse, and nearly 2.5 times the risk of suicide. Nearly 2.5 times the risk of suicide. Furthermore, members of the transgender population are also at higher risk of a variety of mental health problems compared to members of the non-transgender population. The rate of lifetime suicide attempts across all ages of transgender individuals is estimated at 41%. What is the norm compared to under 5% in the overall U.S. 
population. Now read that and answer me this question. Are you going to do the pronouns? Are you going to play along with this? Because is that love? Is that what that is? Is that love? Is that respect? Is that kindness? Compared to the general population, adults who have undergone sexual reassignment surgery continue to have a higher risk of experiencing poor mental health outcomes. One study found that compared to controls, sex reassigned individuals were about five times more likely to attempt suicide and about 19 times more likely to die by suicide. Back to Matthew chapter 19. And so Jesus said in verse 4, I want, I want a man, four and five, I want a man to be joined to his wife. Now I want you to underline something in your Bible, and, and it is the, it's these words, for this reason. The King James says, for this cause. So Jesus says, he made them man, or male and female, man and woman, and then he said, for this cause, have you not read, he that made them at the beginning, made them male and female, and said, and I'm reading from New King James, for this reason. What's the reason? The point is that, that the genders, and isn't it wonderful that we're different? Aren't you glad that we're different? We're two different genders, both human beings, but we complement one another, and one can't do what the other can do, and we're both important. But he says, for this reason. That is to say that he made the two genders with something else in mind. That wasn't the primary purpose. It was a supportive purpose, and the primary purpose that he had in mind was marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're joined together. The word literally means glued together. And so you go to Genesis chapter 1, and the Bible says, God looked at creation, and he said, it's good. He looked at what he had made, and it was good. He looked in it, go to chapter 2, the one thing that wasn't good, the first thing in the world that wasn't good, it's not good that man should be alone. Is that a true statement? Well, I don't know everybody, but I know me, and I'd say yes. That's a true statement. I, I really treasure my wife. I don't want to be without her. Uh, if uh, one of us needs to go on to glory, I, it needs to be me first. I don't think I'd do any good without her. It's not good for a man to be alone. And that's what the Bible says. There's more. Psychology today is in this interesting thing. A lot of people today are, are uh, even in the heterosexual community, uh, heterosexual people are, are living together before they get married, if they get married at all. It just throws the whole thing at cattywampus. It's not God's plan. God's plan was he made male and female, and he did this for this reason, because of marriage. He wanted marriage to exist. It was in the profound imagination of God that this is how humans will do the best. He made them that way. He made them for that purpose. Psychology Today says that, that if you live together and then you marry, if you cohabitate first and then marry, that, that there's a 30 a 31% greater probability. The, the chance of divorce is already great in our culture right now, even if you don't cohabitate. But if you cohabitate prior to marriage, it increases your chance of divorce by 31%. Come on, that's not why we did it. We did it because we wanted to try it out. We'd try marriage out. That's impossible. It is impossible to try marriage out by cohabitating. Can you hear this preacher? It's impossible. That's not what you're doing. 
Because what you're doing is you're cohabitating without the, the commitment. You don't have the commitment, and it's not marriage. Marriage without commitment is not marriage. It just does, it's not. What you have to try out is, is that you stand before the preacher or the justice of the peace and you sign the paper. And then you're tied. Will she stay with you because she has vowed before God? Will he stay with you because he's vowed? As long as you're living together, you're still on the market. Eh, that's why you do it. It's because I can, leave, I can leave without a lot of hoopla. If I want to get rid of you, I just leave. Forward my furniture, right? You can't try it out without being... I, I went and held a meeting, a few meetings in this church in Virginia over the years, in Lynchburg, Virginia. Wonderful church, wonderful people. And one of the men there, in fact, I guess he's still an elder in the church, but he was a chemist. He's retired now, chemist. And, and he made glue. That's, that's what he did. And he, he started his own company, a glue company. Did you know Brother Brown, Nathan, in Lynchburg? You probably met him. But he, he would, so he would sell to corporations, manufacturers, and his glue was not sold in bottles. It was sold in 55-gallon drums. And he would make glue for car interiors, for example. And he made, this is my favorite. He made tennis shoe glue. And he had a machine. So he took me around his plant and, and introduced me to, to a lot of employees and showed me stuff. Fascinating. And he has this machine. And the, the sole purpose of this machine is to rip apart tennis shoes. So it's a very delicate machine. And what it does is he'll, he'll use his glue and he'll glue the shoe together. And when it's all cured and ready to go, just like you'd sell it to a customer, he puts, it in, puts one of them in a machine and he rips it apart. And it measures how much poundage it takes to pull it apart. But you can't test that shoe and tell how much poundage it'll take to rip it apart without putting the glue in it. You have to put the glue in it to make the test. And it's the same thing about living together. You're never going to be able to test whether or not you can live together in marriage if you're not married. And so Jesus says here, made a male and female, and he did it for this reason. He did it for the reason of marriage. All right, here's number next. Drop down to verse six. To verse six. And so Jesus says, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. King James said, let no man put asunder. It means to treat it cheaply or to pull it apart. I don't want you to pull it apart. I had a man come to me one day in another city, and he said, well... I know that it's wrong to divorce and remarry except for the cause of fornication. I said, right, that's what Matthew 19 verse 9 says. He said, so the, though if, if, uh, if a husband and wife get tired of each other, they could just walk away. And so long as they don't remarry, then, then there's no big deal about that. Well, well, no, wait a minute, that's not right. You, Jesus said, I don't want you to put, a, put it asunder. I, I don't want you to treat it like it's useless. I don't want you to separate it. Now, you do have this parenthetical clause which is that in, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, now if you have, and I'm paraphrasing, serious trouble in your marriage, you can separate, but don't you divorce. You separate, no, no fornication, no adultery involved. You can separate for a time and you give yourselves to fast, fasting and prayer. That is, you work to work through this. And then you, some ter terrible problems sometimes are in marriage. And what do we do? And Paul says you can separate, but you do so with the hope of reconciliation. You do so with a hope of reconciliation. Unless there's adultery involved, and then you have a, you know, a different option involved there. Matthew 19 and verse 9. 
Here's the last point. It's this. Marriage which follows this pattern, listen closely now, is the only God-approved arrangement for an intimate relationship. It's the only one. The only, only, only one. And so when you get to 1 Corinthians 7, you start the chapter out and he says, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, let every woman have her own husband. It's the only approved, God-approved intimate relationship is a husband and a wife in the context we're discussing. When you go to Romans chapter 1 and verse 26 and following, he says, it cannot be a man and a man. That's abomination. It's unnatural. That's not my word. That's his. It's not natural. And for a woman to be with a woman, that is not natural. That's not it. That won't be God approved. It'll never be God approved. You can, you can read the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, or 1 Timothy chapter 1. It'll say, it can't be the same gender. It's got, oops, wait a minute, to Jesus. At the beginning, he said, wait a minute, here it is. At the beginning, God made them male and female. It's binary. It's always going to be binary. In my life, in your life, we must never drink this Kool-Aid. We must never do that. Don't get confused about this. Never get mixed up about this because, and this is going to be our greatest challenge in the church as we go on into the future. It'll be your children's, your children's greatest challenge. It'll be your greatest challenge. It won't be that so many of our people are going to become transgender or have this transitional surgery or to become homosexual. It's not that. The greatest, I mean, we'll have some, we already are having some of that in the country, in the world, in the church. But that's not going to be the big one. The big one's going to be that, that we start endorsing it. That's going to be the big sin, that, that we're going to get so accustomed to it, we'll listen to the argument so much, and we'll start endorsing it. And when you get to Romans chapter 1 and verse 32, you have this, this blunt reality. that The condemnation there isn't merely for the abomination of the commission of the sin. It is for those who endorse it. It is also for those who endorse it. All right, let's conclude. Christians are from a God who is love. He is the epitome of love and truth. I'm so thankful for that. Without his mercy, none of us in this room would have any hope, and that certainly includes me. We serve a God of love, and we love people, and we don't hate anybody, and we are not violent people. We are not violent people. We are not going to go there about anything. We're not like that. But you have to define God's way, what love means. And sometimes it means saying, I love you, but you you can't go to heaven like this. And this is going to cause pain. It's going to hurt you. And I I beg you to turn, change your course. And if there's anybody in the sound of my voice, and maybe somebody who's listening on a recording, I don't hate you, I don't hate anybody. But I'm on heart, I don't hate anybody. And if, if you'd like to talk about this some more, and I'd be so happy to do that with you. Maybe you're struggling with this temptation or a temptation relative to this subject in some way or another. Listen to me. Everybody has temptations. Everybody does. That's not the question. The question is, what do we do with it? Do we fight it? Or do we yield to it? Do we push back against it? Or do we endorse it? I want to be on the side of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said these words in Matthew chapter 19.
We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.